0: Welcome to Quanta Magazine's podcast. Each episode, we bring you stories about developments in science and mathematics. I'm Susan Vallett. Not many of us have had the chance, but if you hang out for the evening on the Tanzanian Plain, you might see a spotted hyena trotting around. Sniffing the air for hints of males who might be interested in mating, she marks the border of her clan's territory with a sour paste from under her tail. Gross, I know. Stay with me. Because the paste isn't something she made on her own. It's churned out by billions of bacteria housed within her scent glands. Those odors in the breeze from available males? They're products of those hyenas' unique microbial makeups, too. It turns out that a big part of what defines all of us as individuals, not just hyenas, but all of us, are the invisibly small partners who live inside us. Welcome to the host microbe system. That hyena in Tanzania has a diverse array of bacteria in her gut. They help to break down her meal. Others boost her immune system.
1: If you think about what an animal needs to do to successfully reproduce, it needs to find the appropriate mate. And for many animals... They rely heavily on chemical communication.
0: That's Kevin Tice, a microbiologist at Wayne State University who studies the paste-making microbes of the hyena. But who's trying to survive here? The hyena or the microbes within her? And can we consider them independently? Or does their interaction form something new and greater than each part alone?
1: If it's widespread that the mechanism... By which they are able to either advertise their condition or locate mates or find mates that are genetically compatible with them, if the mechanism for all that is actually the microbes that are living on the body, it just opens up all kinds of questions about how much we've underestimated the potential contribution of these microbes to phenotypes that we've been studying for decades or centuries, and we just maybe weren't focusing on one of these key pieces.
0: Tice says if the genes for important traits are in the microbiome and not in the animal itself, we need to take a systems-level approach. That means looking at the host microbe system as a whole. Look closely enough at any plant or animal. You'll see loads of bacteria, fungi, and viruses forming a complex and interconnected ecosystem. A recent explosion of research reveals how deeply we rely on our microbial patterns to keep our bodies functioning. The studies raise questions about what it means to be an individual. Vital functions like digestion and immunity were long assumed to be under the purview of individual organisms. Capabilities developed and evolved. Natural selection refined them, leaving the strongest individuals to survive. But if our bodies are less an autocracy of identical cells and more a coalition of multitudes, how can we explain their evolution? Some biologists are calling for a radical upgrade of evolutionary theory. They argue that prevailing ideas developed from the study of bigger, more easily understood organisms don't fit nicely into this worldview full of microscopic partnerships— Others contend that existing theory just needs to be applied more carefully. They all agree that the micro and macro worlds are interdependent and that biologists have to explore the frontier of their interconnections. Here's microbiologist Kevin Tice.
1: The main areas of agreement are that there's ubiquitous association between hosts and microbes, that what we see as any individual macrobe is necessarily a product of the interactions between that microbe and its microbiota, um, that the fitness of the macrobe in particular could be greatly influenced by its association with microbes and that there could be transgenerational association. The biggest point of, of debate or lack of agreement is, well, to what extent is it that the fitness of the macrobe is being influenced by its associations with microbes versus that the fitness of the holobiont as a whole is being influenced.
0: Back in 2012, developmental biologist Scott Gilbert proclaimed in a quarterly review of biology paper that we have never been individuals. The bold statement echoed previous calls to reconceive of complex organisms as new kinds of individuals called holobionts, The term holobiont encompasses a host animal or plant and all of its constituent microbes. All genes within a holobiont belonging to the host or the microbes make up the hologenome. In the journal M-Systems, microbiologist Kevin Tice and his colleagues call holobionts and hologenomes incontrovertible realities of nature. Hologenomes contain vastly more genes than the host genome alone— Tice says we have to take a wider look.
1: This is actually a very large network of interactions that's ongoing. And although maybe we can focus on the primary ones, there's thousands of them in the background that are having more modest impact potentially, but overall maybe having dramatic impact. So, you now how do we capture that moving forward? How do we quantify those interactions? That's the challenge.
0: So we need to consider the hologenome as a possible unit of selection if we want to understand the evolution of the holobiont. Seth Bordenstein is an evolutionary biologist at Vanderbilt University. Bordenstein and other researchers argue that host-associated microbes in nature are so ubiquitous we need fresh language to refer to this new idea.
2: First and foremost, I use these terms as structural definitions. Right? How do I categorize, how do I say what the ecosystem is? I say holobiont, and the, therefore the genomes of all the members of that ecosystem is hologenome.
0: Bordenstein says we need to recognize holobionts as meaningful units.
2: And the secondary question is, is does that hologenome matter? does the, Do the organisms interact in a functional way? And that's a secondary issue.
0: No one knows what proportion of the microbiome will influence host fitness. For sure, many are just along for the ride. But if there's some degree of cooperation, then there are more than just two organisms occupying the same space. For example, the host may provide shelter or nutrients for some microbes that in return metabolize products the host can't make on its own. To a degree, they're functionally integrated, and that raises the question of whether the hologenome might also matter when it comes to evolution. The tighter the integration, the more closely intertwined the fates of host and microbe become. Here's Bordenstein again.
2: You can't just look at the animal or host genome singularly to understand evolution, because the phenotype of that ecosystem is a community-based trait, potentially. And that's where the Holobiont Hologenome concept raises the profile and the need to recognize that these larger hosts are ecosystems. And if we want to understand the target of selection, we may need to understand both what the microbes make, the hosts make, and potentially how those products work together.
0: Bordenstein says that interaction leads to this coherent entity that natural selection might act on.
2: Once something is a target of selection, what is the response to selection? And the response to selection is going to happen at the genetic level, right? So who passes on what genes is the response to selection. And so the target is the phenotype that often can be community-based. It also can be individually-based, but this is something we have to sort out.
0: Let's say there's fidelity across generations between hosts and microbes. That is, parents and their kids tend to end up with roughly the same mixes of microbes. Proponents of this hologenomic concept of evolution say then the holobiont embodies a coming together of a bunch of disparate evolutionary lineages into a singular being. That coalition of many then contributes to the functional integrity of the whole. We can only make sense of the complexities of the holobiont if we consider it as a single entity capable of being shaped as a unit by natural selection. Bordenstein says, think of it this way.
2: If selection is operating on the phenotype produced by any member of the holobiont or the combination of those products, the combination of micromanose products, then that's selection on the holobiont. So I guess what I'm getting at here is is, is that the reconceptualization of the individual animal to a community means that selection can operate on phenotypes produced by the host by the microbiome or a phenotype that arises from an interaction of the host and microbiome. And so that is selection on the holobiont.
0: How can traits emerging from the holobiont as a whole rather than from any individual line of cells in it be chosen by nature and spread in the population? The classic recipe for evolution by natural selection is this. It begins with a population of individuals with varying characteristics that affect the number of viable offspring they're likely to have. Those characteristics must be inheritable, passed with relative precision from generation to generation. A trait could hypothetically double some lucky individual's lifespan and number of offspring, but unless that trait gets passed on, it's an evolutionary dead end. Do holobionts meet those criteria for evolving entities? Microbes and host genomes can interact in ways that profoundly affect host fitness. But scientists still don't agree on whether we inherit our microbiome in something, like the way we inherit our genome. Parents pass along microbes to their offspring. For example, females of some species of stink bugs nestle a fecal pellet near freshly laid eggs to serve as the larvae's first meal. That gives them their mother's gut microbiome, along with some immunity to diseases. Typically, human babies, born naturally through the birth canal, acquire their mother's vaginal microbes as they're squeezed into the outside world. Mom's microbes also rub off on a baby through close contact and breastfeeding. Eventually, the microbial community changes as the child moves more freely through the world. But these early microbes play a big role in immune system development. Not all of the microbiome is transferred from parent to offspring, but Bordenstein says it doesn't have to be.
2: Nobody I know expects the microbiome to be vertically inherited in its entirety faithfully in most animals or plants.
0: But Bordenstein says if a significant portion of it is, those interactions and their evolution might be understood as a unit of selection. Other researchers think the hologenome concept of evolution stretches the notion of a selectable unit to the point of incoherence. Derek Skillings is a philosopher of biology at the University of Pennsylvania and the City College of New York.
3: I don't want to make the strong claim that vertical transmission is absolutely necessary. It's just the most likely mechanism to produce the sorts of patterns where you're going to get cumulative evolutionary change of the partnership as a whole.
0: Skillings and other critics argue that there just isn't enough evidence of vertical transmission of symbionts to allow for the holobiont to be a coherent evolutionary individual.
3: What really matters is the interaction between particular, not just members of the same species, but particular genomes. And you could get that without vertical transmission.
0: Many of a host's microbes are acquired from the outside environment, not from its parents. Skillings points to the example of a tree.
3: You can imagine, well, if you have a tree and it drops its seeds on the ground, and as it drops those seeds, the bacteria that are on the adult tree, on the parent tree, sort of infect all of the seeds that are right in that area. So you get this what's called spatial autocorrelation. So it's non-random, it's not vertical transmission. So it's possible you could get those sorts of things where you're just getting these tight spaces, so you're more likely to get the same bacteria as mom or dad than you are from other members because of those sorts of non-random distribution patterns.
0: So even when the environment is shared, there's little reason to assume that a parent's microbes will make it to its offspring. Even if they're the same sorts of microbes, the direct line of vertical transmission is still necessary to form an evolutionary individual. Skillings also says the repeated co-occurrence of species in nature doesn't imply that they have shared interests. Consider a host and a parasite locked in perpetual conflict.
3: The host is doing everything it can, and it's evolving, to try to fight off the parasite over time, and the parasite is doing everything it can to better exploit the host. And we might expect every generation, they're going to come together. The parasites are ubiquitous enough. So we're going to see this parasite exploiting the host in the same sort of community coming together generation after generation. So they come as a bundle. If you get parasites that are better exploiting their host, they are going to become more numerous in the next generation. And if you get hosts that are better at fighting off their parasites, there's going to be more of them in the next generation.
0: Skilling says you could even imagine a familial line of hosts being infected by the same familial line of parasites.
3: If you want to understand how those organisms are changing, you actually want to look at the evolution of each of them independently. But if they're vertically transmitted, then you're not going to get that same variation. So the host and the parasite are going to get both passed on to the offspring. And so they're going to be coupled together. So whatever of those pairs does better, you're going to expect more of those pairs in the next generation. And so if you wanted to look at what are the populations going to look like down the road, well, it's going to be actually those pairs, the host parasite
4: pairs,
0: Proponents of the hologenome concept acknowledge that cooperation, conflict, and even neutrality can influence the evolution of the holobiont. That means the disagreement isn't so much about the facts, but more about how to approach them. Joan Strassman is an evolutionary biologist at Washington University in saint louis who studies microbes. Strassman argues that focusing solely on what's happening in the holobiont misses much of the microbe story. Many host-associated microbes spend big chunks of their lives outside their host. The microbes are in an environment where they're subject to very different selection pressures. Strassman says the holobiont idea puts blinders on our understanding of the evolution of these microbes. She says it focuses attention on the host environment and neglects other habitats that could shape a microbe's character. We have to take microbes into account when we think about all kinds of things. That doesn't mean we have to completely forget what we know about how evolution and natural selection operate. Critics of theory centered around holobionts don't discount the importance of studying the interconnections between microbes and hosts, but they think the holobiont framework is almost always misleading. They envision the holobiont as an ecological community, not an evolutionary individual. But translating existing ecological and evolutionary theory to this new microbial world is more easily said than done. There's some
4: aspects of microbial ecology that are well-known and that don't directly fit in here.
0: That's Britt Koskela, a biologist at the University of California, Berkeley. Many of the theories were built to explain how plants and animals interact and coexist. Take ecological succession, a framework for evaluating how a community assembles over time. For example, the state of a plant community on a new island may depend much more on the order in which species arrive than on the local evolution of the plants. That's because evolution is usually so much slower. But bacteria evolve much faster than plants and animals, and they can swap genes instantaneously via horizontal gene transfer. Here's biologist Britt Koskella again.
4: So there's all those changes that will alter who can come and colonize successfully next. But of course, what also is happening now is that that microbe might, in fact, be evolving. So fundamentally, the question is whether a microbe can arrive and fill available niches before something else can come in.
0: Cascella says you also have to consider other differences, like the influence of a host's immune system over its microbiome and microbes' ability to dynamically alter their environment. She argues that experts looking at these theories need to think through basic assumptions made by their models. She says they need to consider whether the models apply equally well to microbes— She says empiricists and theoreticians need to talk.
4: Uniting data from across these different model systems requires clear theoretical guidelines. It requires a theoretical framework that just doesn't exist yet. But I think the data is there from across these systems, but we just don't know what questions to start answering. What are the questions that these meta-analyses should be tackling? So we need the theory to help us bridge some of these big ideas from across systems. The stakes are that this data is too complex, it quickly, very quickly, moves beyond intuition.
0: Empirical questions include how often a substantial portion of the holobiont is inherited and how stable communities are across generations. But there might be a third way to look at this. It's a radical idea. Forget about the particulars of which microbes are doing the interacting or whether they're vertically or horizontally transmitted. Instead, just focus on the interactions the stable metabolic processes enacted by various microbial players. Evolutionary biologist Ford Doolittle and his former colleague Austin Booth of Dalhousie University in Nova Scotia came up with this idea. They called it ITSNTS, which stands for It's the Song, Not the Singer. That name's an inverted title of a Rolling Stones song. Doolittle and Booth argue that it captures what's so compelling about the idea of holobionts, the stable networks of interaction patterns among disparate lineages, without assigning a special evolutionary identity to them. Instead, the processes themselves form a sort of evolutionary lineage. Doolittle and Booth began from the observation of gut microbiomes— They contain a wide diversity of species and strains across many bacterial taxonomic groups. But the core functions performed by those organisms tend to be very similar across the board. For example, all these networks of different players participate in metabolic cycles. One set of bacteria converts nutrients to metabolites, which get picked up by other bacteria to produce a different metabolite, which gets used by the host. The cycle continues. A bunch of strains in the gut can carry out many of these functional steps, making any given strain potentially redundant. But the cycle itself goes on, no matter which cells enact it. Once these networks exist, they create a niche for other microbes. The cycle becomes a sort of structure for various lineages to grab onto. It's a way for them to make a living. Austin Booth says it dramatically transforms the way we think about what evolution is. He says it turns the traditional way of thinking on its head, with the materialistic basis for lineages taking a back seat. Evolutionary biologist Ford Doolittle compares this to the way songs perpetuate themselves as cultural entities.
1: There are songs which have lasted for a long time, and they've lasted for a long time, basically because a lot of people were happy to
0: sing them. Individual singers come and go, but even in cultures where written and recorded music don't exist, the songs survive by recruiting talent in new generations. This is why Doolittle and Booth call their idea it's the song, not the singer. Similarly, once a metabolic network exists, Diverse lineages of organisms can evolve to perform some of the interactions and processes that define it. Evolution can support that association because it's advantageous for the individuals or genes within the various lineages to do so. Processes being selected via differential persistence is an unusual idea, but not unprecedented— Cultural evolution of ideas in the form of memes may be controversial, but many think it's at least plausible. And no, we're not talking the memes you see on social media. That meme concept was actually inspired by the biological concept of genes. In this case, the idea, or meme, is the metabolic interaction. It persists based on its ability to recruit microbes to carry it out. It's still not clear how useful this framework might be for studying the holobiont. Researchers still need to iron out significant kinks. The notion that differential persistence is comparable to differential reproduction might seem strange to many evolutionary biologists. And it's still far from clear how to define a metabolic network. But evolutionary biologist Austin Booth says this argument over how evolution fundamentally works is nothing new. He points to early debates about whether evolution proceeded gradually or in fits and starts. Evolutionary biologist Seth Bordenstein says they're just in the beginnings of this field.
2: I think about it in the context of what was genetics doing in its first 10 years? since the 1920s you know what kinds of questions were being asked what were so basic you know what was a gene was a question once and how is a gene inherited how do genes interact with each other and so before we put the cart ahead of the horse for thinking about ecoevolution in the holobiont context i think a lot of it is just asking you know who's there what is the complexity of the holobiont and then ultimately getting at how does this all work and function together and so we're going to have a century's worth of work in this area because we're just getting started.
0: In the words of another scientist, there's so much exploring to do. (music) Michelle Yoon helped with this episode. I'm Susan Vallett. For more on this story, read Jonathan Lambert's full article, Should Evolution Treat Our Microbes As Part of Us, on our website, quantummagazine.org. Also, Did you know that this podcast isn't the only way to listen to Quanta magazine? Quanta's books, Alice and Bob Meet the Wall of Fire, and The Prime Number Conspiracy are available to listen to now at audible.com.